This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome everyone to part two of our electrical injury episode. We have Dr. Alex Morziki, myself, Dr. Jamie O, Dr. Cliff Schechter, and Dr. Tam Pham continuing this episode. To recap our first episode, we started with a case of a 40-year-old male who contacted a high-voltage power line while riding a tractor on his farm. He presented with severe pain in his right upper extremity. In the first episode, we reviewed the epidemiology and pathophysiology of electrical injuries. We covered the injury patterns, discussing the impacts on the cardiovascular system, renal system, neurologic system, and of course the skin and musculoskeletal system. Take a listen to part one if you missed it. Now on to part two. So I think the next part of the segment is going to be the period where the patient is currently being monitored where we're looking at their upper extremity, particularly paying close attention to this gentleman's upper extremity. Forearm compartment evaluation and compartment evaluation in general, there's some controversy that exists in regards to whether this is simply a clinical diagnosis or whether this is something that is to be measured using either a device such as a striker or a MacGyver device such as a uh, probe connected to an arterial line. I don't know, Dr. Pham, would you like to um, discuss this? Or Jamie, would you like to discuss this a little bit further? Yeah, sure. The major controversy is really in measuring the compartment. So clinical diagnosis portion is less controversial. So we'll start there. I think we've all heard of the five Ps. So the clinical diagnosis for compartment syndrome, you have to suspect it based off your mechanism of injury, have a tense compartment with the five Ps, and those are pain, uh, generally at rest and with passive stretch, not improving with uh, pain medications, pallor, paresthesias, pulselessness, uh, and paralysis. You think of also time since injury, generally about greater than six hours in terms of ischemia time and edema time. Compartment pressures are a little more controversial because at least in, in the world of general surgery, we talk about how this is truly a clinical diagnosis. If you suspect it, you should do your fasciotomies, but there is a way to measure them. So as you mentioned, there is a device, a striker device, or uh, take an 18 gauge needle, attach it to an arterial pressure monitor and measure your pressures that way. It's not required for diagnosis, at least in the world of general surgery. And we think of it as an adjunct to the clinical features that we mentioned. So it's often useful in patients who are obtunded or sedated and the intubated patient or young children who don't necessarily have a reliable exam. And you want to do serial measurements using the device with a normal pressure being anywhere from zero to eight millimeters of mercury. And we generally consider a abnormal pressure as a delta pressure. This is the diastolic blood pressure of the patient minus the measured compartment pressure. And a measurement less than 30 millimeters of mercury is what we think of as a diagnosis of compartment syndrome. And, and that's an indication for need for fasciotomy. Dr. Pham, do you have any more insight into this? 
Yeah, I tend to be on the side with the clinical exam and uh, trusting my uh, assessment. Usually I look for two things. First is you want to have some kind of neuroplasia. And then second, that neuroplasia should be caused by elevated compartment pressures. And I would uh, diagnose that clinically. The swelling of the muscle can be very impressive over time. And so if you start swelling now when you see the patient, the swelling will be more impressive later. And so you will have to either decompress them now or decompress them later. So if there is a neuroplastia caused by swollen extremity in a setting of a high voltage injury, you pretty much have to go. And for me, uh, having the actual number is only an adjunct. Uh, I periodically do that if a fellow or resident asks me to uh, connect a a needle to an A-line just for the sake of education. But um, that doesn't uh, provide me a cutoff. So I'll I'll usually use my physical exam to help me make a decision. Yeah, this is Cliff Schechter. I just want to really echo what Tom Pham just said. If I see somebody get a striker device out to measure forearm pressures in a patient who has a high voltage injury as a tetany, I'm going to smack the striker device out of their hand. You are wasting your time, and I don't care if that number is stone cold normal. That patient needs to go to the operating room. So there is really no place for measuring pressures in a patient who has a history of a high voltage injury, i.e. over a thousand volts, and has clinical symptoms and signs of a compartment syndrome. It's, It's a very different entity than somebody who passed out on their arm from an overdose or somebody who has a fracture and they're starting to develop high pressures. You have cooked the muscle and the consideration for treating this entity is going to happen upstream from resuscitation. You're not going to go park the patient for five, six hours and measure their pressures. You're going to do your fasciotomies. In fact, you might actually prevent the levels of CK that are going to come because you're going to have a prophylactic component to your fasciotomy. So these patients are one of the few types of burns that we have that often go straight to the operating room from the trauma bay. In the spirit of not having workplace violence, would you like to rephrase how you smack or don't smack a striker device? I will gently brush it away. Thank you. I think the consensus is clear that compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis and certainly just as in the heart, time is muscle. We want to move on and discuss how the uh, compartments are actually released. And and I think it's important to just have a brief overview of the compartments in the forearm and in the hand themselves. Uh, In the setting of a compartment syndrome of the upper extremity, you have to consider the 10 compartments of the hand, including the thenars, hypothenars, the four dorsal interossei, the three palmar interossei, and your adductor compartment. In the forearm, in the volar forearm, you have both superficial and deep volar compartments. And dorsally, you also have a dorsal compartment, including your mobile watt. Dr. Schechter, I don't know, sure if you'd like to go through just briefly how to release the forearm and I can describe the hand. Sure. Yeah. So as you said, Alec, usually your contact point's going to be distal to the wrist. You're going to be performing fasciotomies of the hand and the forearm. So the fasciotomy begins with the carpal tunnel release. I know you'll be talking about the hand, but that's where it really starts. And this is a open carpal tunnel release, no different than somebody who presents to the office with an outpatient carpal tunnel syndrome type picture. And the key there is for people who are not familiar with a carpal tunnel release, this is not the time to learn. This should be performed by somebody who's familiar with the anatomy in the hand because injury to the nerves, injury to the palmar arch could be devastating complications for the patient. But in very standard fashion, you're going to release the carpal tunnel, you're going to release the carpal ligament, 
then you're going to carry that more proximally towards the wrist. Once you get through the ligament, you are then going to take the incision and you're going to travel pretty sharply ulnarly. Now, the reason for that is because if you stay midline, you're going to end up exposing the median nerve and the distal volar wrist. If you go radially, you're going to end up over the radial artery and expose flexor carpi radialis tendon. So the key of going ulnarly after you cross the distal wrist crease is that you're going to be traversing over flexor carpi ulnaris, FCU. And the beauty of FCU is its muscle belly is very distal. So there's not actually a lot of tendon exposed as if you go radially, you end up exposing a lot of FCR. And the other thing is FCU actually protects your ulnar bundle, right? Your ulnar nerve and your ulnar artery sit right under FCU. And then from there, it's a lazy S that arcs over FDS and makes its way towards the mobile wad, which is largely brachioradialis. We talk about the compartments of the forearm as if analogous to the lower extremity where you have these very clear four defined compartments of the lower leg. But truth be told, in the forearm, you need to release essentially every muscle belly because each muscle is enveloped in its own fascia. Your bowler muscles here, you're going to see FCR, FCU, plus or minus palmaris longus. And you're going to then just open up the fascia of all the muscles. And then you'll be able to mobilize FDS and you'll get down to FDP and once again be able to release those muscle bellies. Some people are going to take a peek at pronator quadratus. You know, as you go onto your mobile wad, brachioradialis is really the muscle that you need to visualize and do your release. And then you have your wrist extensors as well that are not far from there. Some people will talk about being able to get all the way around to your extensor digitorum communis through that incision. I find that really challenging. And if you do that, you're actually undermining that flap of tissue onto the back of the arm way too much. You're going to risk devitalizing it. Instead of doing that, I actually just make a separate incision on the back of the arm and you can very cleanly expose your EDC there. And after that, you know, we usually loosely close what we can in the forearm. It's largely going to be open. We're going to pack that with moist gauze. And then the carpal tunnel release in the palm, we are going to close just the skin there. Alex, if you want to talk about how you finish off the rest of the hand, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's continue on with the carpal tunnel. I guess things to really look out for, obviously your median nerve is there. Your recurrent branch of your median nerve that innervates your intrinsics have various branching patterns, even intraligamentous. So going through your transverse carpal ligament, you can sometimes come across it. So just be weary that the recurrent branch of the median nerve doesn't always sit distal to transverse carpal ligament and actually can sit beneath it. A good way to find your carpal tunnel as well, for those maybe not as familiar with this, using your third ray or the radial border of your fourth digit brought down to the palm is a good way to kind of find a landmark. And then your superficial palmar arch is marked from the hook of the hamate to the first web space apex, and that should be the distal extent of your release. In terms of the rest of the hand compartments, certainly the dorsal and palmar androsii should be released generally through two incisions, one over the radial border of the second metacarpal, ideally off-center so as to not expose the periosteum or the bone of the metacarpal, and then another one on the ulnar border of your fourth digit. From there, you can release your intrinsic hand muscles as well as your adductor compartment in your thumb, which is often forgotten and certainly plays a key role in adduction as well as opposition of the thumb which for later discussion will be important for reconstruction. In terms of your thenars and hypothenars, generally incisions are made in a junction between the glabrous and non-glabrous skin on the radial border of the thumb to release the thenars, as well as the ulnar border of the hypothenars to release those concurrently. 
sometimes it's hard for the clinician to kind of decide how much of an incision, how many incisions do I include the carpal tunnel release every time? What's the deal with the owner nerve? Yeah, so I'll just say that if you have concern for compartment syndrome in the upper extremity that you must perform a carpal tunnel release. These patients are often going to have tingling in their fingers. They're going to have some difficulty in movement. There's no way you can guarantee yourself that the median nerve is okay and has enough room to breathe. You know, the ulnar release or Guillain's canal, I'd say this is an area that could be controversial. It's not as tight of a space as the carpal tunnel. So there theoretically is no indication to release it. Just to chime in, there's some evidence to suggest that even by releasing the transverse carpal ligament, you actually change the architecture of Guillain's as that provides some of the architecture of Guillain's canal itself. Can I ask, you know, I'm more familiar with lower extremity fasciotomies, but I imagine similar to upper extremity, sometimes you can have trouble subsequently closing the incisions. Do you guys have a stepwise approach in terms of subsequent wound care than how you go about closing these incisions? Yeah, that's a great question. So like I said, in the hand, you are going to close the carpal tunnel and you might be able to close a bit of the distal wrist incision as well. With your inner OCI, it depends what you find, right? If you open up your thenar and hypothenar compartments and the muscle is popping out and it's super swollen, you're not closing it. If you take a peek and it's totally normal, you may kind of put some loose stitches in there, but you know you, you are going to anticipate some swelling happening, so you really don't want to cause problems or basically undo the whole release you just did. Same thing on the back of the hand. For the forearm and then for the back of the arm, you're definitely not going to be able to close at least one of those, if not both of them. If you find a ton of myonecrosis at the time of your release, and that muscle's dead. In general, at the initial release, that's not the time to do a debridement. You're just going to pack and you're going to be taking a second look in you know, a day or two. People will have all these different ways. They try to put the skin flaps down. You know, they'll staple the edge of the skin and they'll do this Roman sandal elastic type setup using vessel loops. And you're going to be having a second look coming back. And that's when you're going to start doing debridement. And it may take you multiple rounds of debridement to get to healthy tissue before you're considering the process of reconstruction. And so I really wouldn't be in the mode of wound backing these incisions until you've gone through the period of debridement and getting rid of what's dead. The next topic, but Dr. Pham, maybe would you like to touch on perioperative care for these patients after release? I think the priority is then to continue stabilizing the patient. And I would prioritize the following three areas. One is to monitor for EKG abnormalities, especially as the patient may develop hyperkalemia with the release that you've just done in the OR. Two, I've seen it sometimes is that in the rush to bring the patient to the OR, in patients with large concomitant burns, it's important to not forget about hypothermia. So work on rewarming the patient ideally intraoperatively, but postoperatively as well. And sometimes it is wise to delay wound care in other areas for like an hour or so in the ICU until the patient is warm again. Next is to continue serial neurovascular exams on the extremity that has been most affected by this injury. And I'm always impressed and humbled by how much muscle can swell over the first couple of days. Okay, moving on. Reconstructive goals and key functions to preserve and options for reconstruction. Just to segue into the discussion, I think the degree of injury varies significantly from injury to injury. Ultimately, your approach has to be tailored to what is lost, what is missing, 
and ultimately what is required for the patient and their function down the road, whether occupational, volitional, or otherwise. Dr. Schechter, to begin, what are the key points and key functions to preserve when you're discussing reconstruction? I think let's start with the more acute phase. I'll kind of segue into late sequelae of compartment syndrome being Volkman ischemic contracture. Sure. So as you said, electrical injuries are all going to have a unique signature. Patients who lose all their fingers, some of their fingers, they lose the ulnar side of their forearm, the radial side. Electrical injuries are just really, really nasty injuries in terms of the amount of damage that they cause. It's really going to be your typical thought process towards reconstructing any wound. Up front, it's going to be just a very much a wound coverage approach. And so you can easily be in a situation where you have a lot of bone exposed, a lot of tendon neurovascular structures. And so these are cases where we're going to use flaps to get large wound coverage if you want to use something that's not microsurgical intensive, the groin flap is a great option to reconstruct large soft tissue deficits of the hand in particular, and you can design groin flaps that are even larger or tissue that can cover part of the arms. It's challenging electrical injury because the zone of injury could potentially be the whole arm, especially if you have one contact point that was on the hand and finger, another contact point that was going out the shoulder or the back. You know that current went all the way through the arm, and so the endothelium to any blood vessel you're going to plug into on the arm could be inflamed and could put you at risk for thrombosis and having your flap go down. You deal with a lot of challenges in these cases and you have to be ready for failure and to consider ways of mitigating that. Obviously, there's tons of different flaps and opinions of what you can use, but something with a bigger surface area is going to be helpful like a latissimus with a skin graft or an ALT in someone who has a thin enough thigh. In the event that somebody loses, say, just their thumb, depending on what level they lose the thumb on, down the line, you could be talking about total thumb transfers. If the amputation is at the level of the carpus, you might need two flaps to reconstruct a thumb to get some base to start off. Thinking about late sequelae now of electrical injury, in essence, Volkman ischemic contracture. To begin, generally, in, when we think about compartments, we think about whether it's mild, moderate, or severe in general categories. Mild, generally only involving you know a few fingers, generally the third and fourth, and involving generally only the deep compartments. Once you go on to more moderate and more severe, sometimes all the dorsal and volar forearm musculature are involved. Certainly at that point, you may be looking at even doing a free-functioning muscle transfer if you are reconstruction for function. I think early on in those patients who have potentially mild involvement, the importance of physiotherapy and rehabilitation, as well as edema management, should not be overlooked. And having those patients maintain passive, soft, and supple range of motion, with addition to either serial splinting, whether dynamic or static, um, or serial casting, may be very important. And then when we're thinking about reconstructing the volar forearm or even the dorsal forearm, it becomes important uh, at that point to determine what is involved and what is needed for function. Sometimes that may be only a tenolysis or releasing the tendons, a neurolysis, because often these patients do develop some evidence of compression neuropathy type symptoms even down the road and their nerves often encase in scar. And oftentimes a flap whether fascia cutaneous or muscle-based flap is necessary prior to even doing those as there's no point to really release all the tendons and your nerve if you don't have any good soft tissue coverage. Thinking about the tendons themselves, options include step or Z-lengthening. Flexor pronator slide has certainly been described for gaining length and gaining function in the forearm. 
or even just simply releasing the scar tissue or even things that don't work anymore may be enough to gain sufficient function of the long finger flexors or extensors or even the intrinsics. And then moving on to more complex things, tendon transfers are uh, an important option depending on what's left behind. Once again, having a tailored approach. And then finally, if the forearm is devoid of any soft tissue available for function and movement, sometimes a free-functioning muscle transfer may be the only option, in which case either gracilis or latissimus or another free-functioning muscle can be transplanted to the forearm or the wrist or the fingers or even the elbow if the injury extends that high and can be powered on the residual nerves. But generally at that point, there is no muscle that's uh, unfortunately left behind in that patient. Uh, and that would be a late stage reconstruction option for severe burn electrical injury to the forearm. Yeah, I think you said that well, Alex, that's a very comprehensive approach to both contractures. Going through a case like this with a patient, I think what you do up front with them, or in addition to your detailed physical exam, identifying what nerves are involved, what tendons are present, what tendons are out. You go in with the expectation that in the first operation, you're going to go in there and kind of assess the damage, what's possible, let them know that if anything is straightforward enough to be dealt with, with just, you know, some type of tendon sliding procedure, that you'll do that at that time. But that it's very possible that you're going to get in there and it's going to look like a bomb went off and FDP is essentially all dog meat. Uh, the median nerve is in a huge scar ball that's going to take a bunch of time to neurolyse, that you're really just going in there to assess what's there and what the problems are, letting the patient know that they're going to wake up potentially with a wound and that you're going to have an additional conversation about the next step, You know whether that's a functional muscle transfer. We really like to use the gracilis for that because it's very slight and it ends up being a nice muscle that fits in the forearm. You'll cut out FDP and you'll just tenodice all the distal FDPs together and then you'll do one gracilis there. You bring up tendon transfers, which is another great option. But once again, that's going to be a very detailed conversation with patients because they're going to be actually losing a tendon somewhere else, hopefully where they have something else that can compensate. But usually those conversations are going to happen after you have that initial operation where you take stock of everything that's damaged and, and let them know what's possible. I just have to apologize, Dr. Schechter, to our guests, maybe uh, Americans tuning in. Uh, that's Z-plasty would, is also Z-plasty, um, but I will, uh, once I'm in Seattle, I will uh, convert my Canadianisms. Yeah, it will come back when, you, when you're on call. It's okay. We, we tolerate it. Yeah, we tolerate Z as well. It's just, I just like to say Z is dead, baby. Z is dead. I'd like to take on the late sequela. This is a tough issue for uh, patients who come to our clinic. But first, I think they do occur acutely as well. It's uh, something that's very puzzling. I've had patients who have had complete spinal cord paralysis that happens on day three. And then by the time they leave inpatient rehab, they're totally recovered and don't even need a walker. Perhaps the most reported sequela is pain that you see in clinic, often in the same extremity as the original contact point. Otherwise, the pain can seem very nonspecific when they describe it to you. You're puzzled because the skin, the soft tissue are totally healed on inspection and palpation. Pain is presumably related to the underlying musculoskeletal injury. I think the best thing we can do as providers is to have an open mind and acknowledging the patient's symptoms. I recall not knowing about the symptoms when I first started in this field or know what to do about them until more literature came out and substantiated the observations that we made in the follow-ups in patients in clinic. Pain sometimes coincides with other neuropathic symptoms, but not always. These include loss of sensation, abnormal sensation or paresthesias, 
muscle weakness. I've seen a lot of these symptoms actually improve or even resolve with patients and outpatient therapy. Central nervous system symptoms include headaches, specifically migraines, and insomnia, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and major depression. Post-surgical nerve problems definitely occur with amputation sites, and there are strategies to help prevent these at the time of amputation. Delayed onset neuromas still occur with some frequency, as well as heterotopic bone ossification at the cut ends of amputation sites. This condition may lead to amputation revision in up to one third of patients. All symptoms of sequela, of course, delay the patient's reintegration into the workforce. As you recall in the case, these tend to be young male injured workers. Referral to vocational counseling is useful to help advocate for the patient and chart a course for progressive reintegration. Though the majority of patients I've seen are able to return to some work, some sequela can prohibit patients from returning to the same job duties. Cataracts have been reported by multiple groups in the literature. In those injured at work, treatment of late cataracts can be covered by the claim if the patient did not already have cataracts at the time of injury. So our practice is to have ophthalmology consultation for patients acutely in order to establish a baseline exam. Interestingly, however, one of the better papers I've read recently is a well-done Danish cohort study where they did not find a higher incidence of cataracts compared to individuals with an unrelated type of injury or matched by occupation. The latter study calls into question the utility of systematic screening for cataracts. So more to come about that in the future. So in the last episode, we got our patient through the acute phase of their high-voltage forearm electrical injury, and today we talked about how to manage short-term complications like compartment syndrome, then longer-term issues like reconstruction options, and sequelae like prolonged neurologic and ophthalmologic symptoms. We hope that this overview will help you to feel more confident managing these patients and getting the appropriate consultants involved in their care. Well, without further ado, I just want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Thank you, Dr. Pham, Dr. Schechter, Dr. O for your contribution. I think this case highlights a lot of important issues and hopefully was educational and useful for electrical injuries and any cases that may present to your center in the near future. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.